morning, everybody. I am Lucas. Uh, my wife is Antoinette. We have been part of Two Rivers um, for a while. The building that we started uh, going to now is a pile of rubble underneath CSU Stadium, which is kind of fun to think about. Um, it is the weekend before Thanksgiving, and you know that when we come around a holiday, you know who it is, right? Like, you know when it's holiday weekend, I'm not sure how many people are going to be there, like, this guy, this guy, it's his time, it's his time. Um, but there's actually quite a few people here, which is great. My wife told me this week, man, if someone has heard you preach more than twice, they are dedicated. They're dedicated to come to church, because I can, I can put Thanksgiving on the list of holidays now. Um, Obviously, I'm kidding. It's just coincidental. At least that's, that's what I'm going to keep telling myself. Uh, we are in a series through the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've been with us. Uh, today, we're looking at chapter 11. There are 12 chapters, so we're getting close to wrapping this thing up. Um, if you have your Bible, open it up to Ecclesiastes 11. I'm going to read a section of the chapter that I'm going to be focusing on. Uh, the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 6, uh, are largely like kind of Proverbs-style, quick-hitter, wisdom literature. I'm not going to say much about that section, not because it's unimportant, but because that's kind of hard to preach on. So um, I would encourage you to go and meditate on that portion of the chapter yourself. We're going to look at verses 7 through 10. So I'm going to read that if you're following along with me. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all, but let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment." So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Early on in this series, um, if you were here for kind of the first part, I remember Jason mentioning a lot that a lot of people were saying, man, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible. People were saying, I love Ecclesiastes, I love it so much, go to it all the time, it's my favorite book. Um, and I, full disclosure, I'm one of those people. Like, I, lo- I love Ecclesiastes. I uh, always have. I go to it a lot. Um, it's been an, a significant book in my, in my life. Um, I go to it often. The last two weeks, I think Greg and Jody have pointed out some necessary observations in that, even, like, yeah, we can love the book, but it's kind of confusing a little bit, too. And there's like a conflict that's kind of staring us in the face a little bit. Um, and it's okay if you kind of get muddled up by this book every now and then. Um, so this morning, I kind of want to lean into it a little bit. I want to lean into that tension. Because on a first reading, it can be confusing. And the teacher, um, the narrator, the teachers, the words of the book, might be Solomon, might be a Solomon-like figure. That's not as important. What's really important is the teacher's experiences that we are hearing about Um, in the book, the words of the teacher upon a first reading can sometimes come off as being full of despair and full of disillusion. Sometimes it seems like the teacher is um, holding two different ideas together at one time, and there's a tension. 
And if you haven't noticed that, or if you haven't been with us, um, I'm going to point out, I'm going to point that out a little bit this morning, and I want to lean into it. And the question I want to try to answer is, how do we reconcile this? Because obviously there's this, there's these glimmers of hope in this book, and there are also moments of agony and frustration. So how do we hold those things in tandem? How do we reconcile that? That's kind of where I want to go. I want to go. So I'm going to lean into that confusion um, this morning. Because at the end of chapter 11, what we just read is one of those places that can kind of send you into this like intellectual tailspin a little bit. Because it seems like there's ideas that, I don't know, shouldn't really flow from each other. Like, however many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. Yeah, yeah, cool. But remember the days of darkness, because there will be many. Like, it's kind of like, well, which one is it? Right? Which one is it? Like, the teacher hasn't made up his mind, man. And there's this kind of frustration that you might, that you might find. So I want to lean into that. I want to lean into it. Um, Chapter 11 is not the only place where you kind of have this tension. So I think to to lean into it, I want to back up a little bit, and I kind of want to re-examine some of the major recurring themes and purposes of the book of Ecclesiastes, and hopefully might be able to bring bring a little bit of clarity. So jump back to chapter 2. If you have your Bible, uh, jump to chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes. I'm going to pull some things out of here, and then we're going to return back to chapter 11. Um, All through chapter 2, the teacher is saying, like, pleasures are meaningless, wisdom is meaningless, toil is meaningless, all this stuff is meaningless. And then at the end of chapter 2, his tone changes completely, and it's one of those places where you're like, wait a minute, I thought I just said nothing mattered, everything's meaningless, but now he's telling me to enjoy life. Which one is it? So we're going to pull some things out of here, and then we're going to go back to chapter 11. Um, if somebody asked you what the, like the point or the purpose of Ecclesiastes is, what do you think you'd say? Just think about it for a second. What would you say if somebody asked you, what's the, what is Ecclesiastes all about? What's the book trying to get at? Um, I think how I would answer that question is that Ecclesiastes is the report of this great thought experiment that the teacher embarks on. For him, it was more of a reality and experiences experiment, but for us, it's a thought experiment. And he's reporting on the conclusions that he has drawn from this great experiment that he embarks on. So what's the experiment? Well, the experiment is, he says, Let's assume that there are two different approaches to life, two different premises to life. And he presents those two premises to life kind of in tandem throughout the book and their relative conclusions. And we see, we see these two different worldviews kind of paralleled with each other in different places throughout the book. So we're going to talk about both of them a little bit, and we're going to get to the conclusion of each of them. The first approach to life that the teacher embarks on, uh, we can call it the under the sun premise. So this phrase under the sun comes up over and over and over again in the book. Um, What does that mean? What does he mean when he talks about life under the sun? The under the sun premise is an approach to life that assumes that this is all there is, that the moment is all there is. What's happening right now? Life here is all there is. There's no eternity There's no absolute truth. There's no God, or at least not a God that is near. Um, 
That's the under the sun premise. And that is the approach to life that the teacher goes to adopt. And this has been a, this has been a, a, a method of thinking that's been common forever, but uh, certainly in modern times, this is, this is popular, right? We would consider this like a, like a postmodern, post-Christian uh, worldview, the under the sun premise. And in chapter two, we see the teacher throw himself into this mindset. In the under the sun premise, the moment is all there is. It's penultimate. So like every point of meaning in life, purpose, pleasure, satisfaction, delight, it's all stored up in the moment. So under that assumption, well, you better like live it up, right? So the teacher says, okay, we want to live life like that? Game on. Let's do it. I'm going to wring life out for all it's worth and see what I get. So in chapter 2, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but in chapter 2, here's some things that he says. He says, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. So he's going on an experiment, right? He's going to test himself to find out what is good, and he's going to test himself with pleasure. He says he undertook great projects. So he's doing all this stuff to try to see what life is all about. He says he amassed silver and gold. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired I refused my heart no pleasure. This is what he's doing throughout Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and he's going to report on that and what he gets. He embarks to find ultimate satisfaction in self-indulgence in a way that very few people on the earth today could ever hope of replicating. Like when he says, I denied my eyes nothing they desired, he's not joking, okay? Like, he blows up. He's king in Israel. He can do whatever he wants. And he does it. And he lives it up. And this is significant to consider because here he's, he's doing what a lot of people today like aspire to do in life. Live it up. Carpe diem, right? Live, live for the moment. The under the sun premise is in essence the same as a lot of popular approaches to life today like the you do you mentality. Or just do whatever makes you happy mentality, and that's what life is all about, right? So the teacher says, you want to live like that? Let's do it. And he does it for all it's worth. And if this moment is all there is, then like those monikers are sound wisdom. But after all that, what does he conclude? Well, it's in uh, verse 11 in chapter 2. It says, yet when I had surveyed all that my hands had done, And what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So he lives it up. He wrings life out for all it's worth. And after all of this work and pleasure and wealth and everything, he still comes up wanting. So the conclusion is, none of it mattered. Nothing changed. Everything is meaningless. And in the the under-the-sun premise, that's true. That is where he arrives. So in this part of Ecclesiastes 2, where he is reporting on this, um, you see what he's doing? This is a deconstruction of a secular worldview. Maybe you've heard a lot recently, deconstruction of faith is really popular. People are going on these deconstructive uh, 
experiences, right? Ecclesiastes is a deconstruction of a purely secular worldview and its real implications. Yeah, there were moments during this experience, this experiment, this testing that the teacher did, there were moments that there was pleasure and there was delight and there were probably moments of satisfaction and instances of meaning. But on the whole, at the end of it all, everything was meaningless. Vapor, pebble, right? Chasing after the wind. It's here and it's gone. So that's the first approach to life uh, that the teacher presents to us. But it's not the only one. It's not the only one he sees. And we see the other one here at the end of chapter 2. So I mentioned, if you're looking at it in your Bible, in verse 24 uh, of Ecclesiastes 2, the tone changes. Up till now, the whole book has been meaningless, meaningless, toil is meaningless, pleasure is meaningless, wisdom is meaningless, everything's meaningless, because it didn't work. But then something changes in verse 24. He just seems to like pull a total 180. He says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So on a first reading, you think like, wait a minute, he just said everything's meaningless, but now he's saying, but it's good to enjoy a meal or enjoy your work. So like, which one is it? And this is the conflict that I think we, we experience a lot when we're reading Ecclesiastes. Well, in verse 24, I think he's now presenting the alternative worldview to the under-the-sun premise, and we'll call it the eternal premise. Because, again, it's, just, it's an experiment, and he's presenting his conclusions. The under-the-sun premise gets to meaninglessness, but there is another approach to life that the teacher sees call it the eternal premise. And it's essentially the opposite. So, again, the under-the-sun premise assumes the moment is all there is. The eternal premise assumes the moment is not all there is. There's something more. There's something beyond. Eternity is real. What are the implications of that? Well, if there's God and we have eternity to consider, under that assumption, the present moment, here and now, this life, is now no longer required to carry the weight and the responsibility of ultimate satisfaction. How is that? Because there's something else. There's something else that can carry it. Because he just went and said, well, if let's say the moment is all there is, then I gotta find everything in the moment and it didn't work. So in the, in the eternal premise, we can say there's something else that can carry that weight. And that mindset comes with freedom to release everything that happens under the sun. We can release it from the responsibility to carry the weight of hope, providing us with total satisfaction. And ironically, which we see a couple times throughout Ecclesiastes, it's only through this realization that the moment can't carry the weight of hope. It's only through that realization that then we have freedom to enjoy the moment for what it is, and not what it's not. We're no longer left to find meaning in the pleasures of life. Instead, the pleasures of life become, one commentator I read uh, put it like this, the pleasures of life become good seasoning for a life that finds its meaning in eternity and an eternal God. 
So under the eternal premise, it's not that the moments of life are utterly meaningless, it's that they can't give you eternal hope. And when you release them from that expectation, well, now you're free to enjoy them for what God has provided. Jason said it well um, earlier in the season. Jason made the statement, we live into the moment not because it's all there is, but because that's where it is, where God has put simple pleasures and simple delight that beckon us to him and not to the moment. So here's these two worldviews and approaches to life that the teacher is presenting to us. And I think they can be summarized here. Under the sun, moment is all there is, everything's meaningless. And you can't get to any conclusion other than that, by the way, in the under the sun premise. If you assume this is all there is, all roads lead to meaninglessness. And you have to admit that. There's no way around it. The eternal premise assumes this moment is not all there is. And if that's true, there is meaning beyond, meaning beyond this moment. Um, I think what's confusing is that these two assumptions or approaches to life are presented in tandem with each other throughout the book. And you have to be careful. Often, they're often in juxtaposition, just like they are in chapter two, right? So most of the chapter, he's operating under the, under the sun premise, and he's in total disillusionment. Everything's meaningless. But then in verse 24, his tone changes, right? And he sees, well, that's not all there is. There is hope. There is hope when we adopt an eternal mindset. So they're in juxtaposition. They're, they're tangled up with each other. They're presented in tandem with each other throughout the book. And we have to be careful um, to consider which one we're really thinking about at, at, in that moment. Because if you take the conclusion of one and apply it to the other, well, then we have a problem. Um, so we'll do a little exercise here. There's a famous observation in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes that we're probably all familiar with. Um, he said, the teacher says, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And the idea is, no matter what we do, like horse tooth rock's not going to be moved. Right? Like, no matter what you do in life, Long's Peak is probably still going to be there. And that's true. That's not an opinion. That's, that's an observation. Let's receive that observation through each of these two lenses, one at a time, and see where we get. Okay? So adopt the under-the-sun premise for a moment. Just put yourself in that thinking. Under the sun, this moment is all there is. Everything in life, purpose, pleasure, meaning, is right here, right now. Well... That observation, that no matter what you do, um, the earth remains forever, if this moment is really all there is, then that reality is utterly, utterly discouraging. Because the implication is, no matter what you accomplish in life, no matter what you do in this moment, no matter what, uh, I and all my work will soon disappear. And that's true. And if I'm living my life under the sun, in that frame of thinking, well, I will be led to say, well, nothing really matters. Now let's receive that observation through the eternal premise, an eternal way of thinking. Eternity says that this moment is not all there is. There is meaning beyond. 
If that's true, the same observation, generations come, generations go, the earth remains forever. If we're operating under the eternal premise, that same observation actually brings liberation. How is that? Because I can clearly see that this moment can't bring ultimate peace. And I can stop holding hope that it will. So that observation that generations come and generations go and the earth remains forever under the eternal premise is actually an invitation to hope. Hope in something beyond what's happening right now. I promise I'll talk about chapter 11. Okay. We're almost there. Um, when I was in college, I worked at a summer camp uh, every summer I was in college, and my wife and I worked there together. We weren't, we weren't married. Uh, the first summer we worked there, we weren't even dating. Um, there is a, you might be aware of this, but there's like a hierarchy, a pyramid of like romantic experiences that Christians have, and working at a summer camp is like tier one. It is elite, okay? I know Jason knows this. Yeah. I'm the proof of that. Um, so the first summer we're working at camp, my wife and I aren't even dating. We're just friends. Um, not for long, though, but we were just friends. And uh, <laughs> all jokes aside, there was this camper there that, well, I'll give you a little bit more background. So the, the structure of this camp was that kids came, high school kids came up for five weeks straight. They lived there for five weeks. And us as the college kids were responsible for, like, cooking food with them, cleaning bathrooms, kind of doing maintenance and stuff like that. And then we'd do like Bible study and stuff when you had time for that. Um, but anyways, all jokes aside, there was this camper there that was dealing with some, with some legitimate mental health challenges. Um, really high anxiety kid. And there was this one night that we were cleaning up the floor in the dining hall, okay? And for whatever reason, this girl just adopted the cleanliness of this floor as, like, her total identity. Like, that was everything that mattered in that moment. Like, the only thing that mattered was how clean that floor got. That was all, that was everything that mattered in that moment. And, um, of course, you know, we don't have time to make it spotless, so we're trying to get out of there, and we're saying, okay, we got to go. But, she, again, she's, like, wrapped up in this. She has adopted this as her, like, identity. Um, so she goes into like a panic attack. She falls into a panic attack because she can't finish this task that she's latched onto. Um, so Antoinette and I like bring her out onto this balcony and we're trying to get her calmed down. Uh, we're trying to be encouraging, like it's okay, you know, we can finish it later or whatever. And she's just, she's just spiraling out. So this was a time in my life where I was like, I was like a fanboy for Ecclesiastes at this time, just coincidentally. Um, I was reading it all the time, like talking to people about it all the time. I'm in like my like Ecclesiastes, you know, that's kind of how I feel. Um, so in my head, my 19-year-old brain is like, oh, I know, okay, so this girl's having a panic attack. I know how to, I know what it'll do. I'm going to lecture her. That's going to work, right? So I'm like, I know what she needs to, I know what she needs to hear, so buckle up. Um, so I just like take a total 180. There's like a lull in us trying to calm her down. And I'm like, hey. We're in the mountains, right? So I'm like, hey, look out at the tree line. Do you see that tree out there, that really tall tree, tallest one? She's like, yeah. I say, 
you know what? No matter how clean this floor gets, the tree's not going anywhere. Tomorrow morning, that tree's still going to be there. That tree's still going to be there even when this building isn't here. And in my head, I'm like, mark it, box it up, we're done, like that was it. Slam dunk, let's get out of here. I'm like, roll the, roll the sappy music, we're done. But she looks at me and is like, why would you say that? Like that that's so depressing. That doesn't make me feel better. You know, she's like spiraling out. Um, it didn't work. It didn't work. Why didn't it work? Why didn't it work? Because I am thinking under an eternal premise. So to me, the fact that that tree's not going anywhere is freeing. I can say, yeah, I'm gonna, we're going to clean this floor, and we're going to do it well, and we're going to do it the best we can, but it's not everything. This moment's not everything, right? There's something more, so it's okay. She's not thinking like that. She's operating with the under-the-sun premise. In that moment to her, that floor was everything. Like, her life is wrapped up in that floor. So for me to tell her, oh, you know what, it doesn't matter, really, <laughs> That's like saying you don't really matter. Like the things that you care about don't really matter. So of course it didn't work. She heard me say this moment isn't all there is. No matter what you do, you're going to die and this building's going to crumble. It doesn't matter anyway. That's what she heard me say, right? What I should have said was, hey, this moment's not all there is. So let's enjoy it for what it's worth. Let's do a good job and be satisfied with the result. So like I said, I'm trying to reconcile some of this tension a little bit. And I think these these two approaches to life that the teacher presents to us in tandem throughout the book are helpful to understand as we're sifting through when he's calling everything meaningless and then in the next breath is saying, well, everything is not meaningless. Which one is it? Well, it depends on how you approach life. Um, this book is not, it's not really what you expect to find when you open the Bible. When you open the Bible, you kind of expect love, joy, peace, hope. You don't expect meaningless, you know. It's a little, it's a little different. But guys, here, that is, that's the point. That is exactly the point. That's the point of the book. This is a book with an underlying assumption unlike any other book in the Bible. Because for much of what the teacher is saying, he's assuming a godless worldview. And that's the point. He wants to tease out the full implications of that kind of approach to life. And you might be thinking, well, that's great for unbelievers, or that's great for like the person sitting next to me. Um, but not for me. Like I don't, I don't need to hear that. We need to hear this. We need to have this presented to us in unmistakable terms. Because whether you've been walking with Jesus for five seconds or five decades, you live in the world. And we are tempted to think with the the under-the-sun premise that this is all there is and I have to find everything right here, right now. We're tempted to think like that. And Ecclesiastes is the deconstruction of that type of approach to life. And we need to hear it. We need to hear it. All right, so let's go back to chapter 11. Now that we've kind of sifted out 
under the sun premise, eternal premise, and there are different places in the book. Let's go back to chapter 11 because I think we see them both here. In verse 8 in chapter 11, I'll read it again. He says, however many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. I would say that in this verse, he is speaking from the under the sun premise. This verse is coming from the assumption that this is all there is. And if there is all there is, yeah, you better live it up. Enjoy it all. But if this is all there is, that doesn't change the fact that there are going to be hard times too. And in that sense, you really can't get what you're hoping for in the moment. So if this is all there is, live it up, but times are going to be hard too. It's meaningless. If this is all there is. And again, if that's true, if this moment is all there is, then what he says in verse 8 is accurate. It is meaningless. Now, if we go to verse 9, again, if you're just reading this, on a first reading, well, he says, everything is meaningless. And then his very next statement, you who are young, be happy while you're young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your earth. Follow the ways of your heart. But he just said everything's meaningless. So again, it's like, what? How can he say that? Well, there is something starkly different about verse 9 than verse 8. I know verse 8 isn't up on the screen, but there's something about verse 9 that is highly significant, different from verse 8. Maybe you can see it. Mark, you can highlight it. God is mentioned in verse 9, not in verse 8. Verse 9 adopts an eternal perspective, whereas verse 8 doesn't. And guys, for the teacher to even mention God in Ecclesiastes, like, this is significant. God isn't brought up much in this book. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense for a book where the majority of the time the teacher is adopting a secular worldview, right? Makes sense that we don't see God mentioned too much. But he's mentioned here, and that's significant. That's why verses 9 and 10 are different. Verses 9 and 10 are spoken from with an eternal perspective. Because there is an eternal God, you find, we can find our meaning in him rather than the moment. That frees us to enjoy the phases of life for what they are. Fleeting as they are, there is freedom to enjoy. Because if this, if this moment, really all there is, so shift back to the under the sun premise, if this moment is all there is, then youth and vigor are everything. And their disappearance is cause for despair. If this, moment is ever, if this moment is all there is, then yeah, youth and vigor are meaningless in the end because they're here and they're gone. But in the eternal premise, we're free to enjoy phases of life. And we can admit that youth is not all that matters. When I started teaching, I, uh, I was I was 22 years old, so I'm like four years older than some of the kids that were sitting in my classroom. And um, halfway through that first year that I was teaching, I uh, chaperoned a dance. 
and I'm doing coat check with this other teacher at the school. So, I'm, you know, it's my first year, so I'm like the new guy on the block, but I, had, I knew people, I knew who this teacher was, um, and, you know, we're taking coats or whatever. So for the first hour or so that we're there, we're just doing our job and making small talk, to, how's, how's your school year going, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then there's a lull in the conversation, and again, just, just for emphasis, we are coworkers, me and this person, right? Um, there's a lull in the conversation, and the teacher looks at me, and it's like, so what grade are you in? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, like, what do I do now? I'm thinking, do I, do I say, well, I mean, I, I work here, we're coworkers. Or do I just lean into it? I'm like, yeah, I'm a senior. I'm going to graduate. Just to like spare her from the embarrassment. Um, I don't remember what I said, but we were kind of friends after that, so it must not have been too awkward. So that was when I first started. Now, um, now I have students say things to me like, Mr. Smith, you look terrible today. Like I just do one time walking, it's just first thing, man, Mr. Smith, you look, you look terrible. You should go home. Or just recently, there was a student in my office that said, Mr. Smith, you got bags under your eyes. I'm like, oh, man. It's different. The game's changed. Why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because if I'm thinking with the under the sun premise, if this moment is all there is, if this life is all there is, that story's not funny. <laughs> That story is really depressing, right? Because youth is leaving. But with the eternal perspective, with eternity in mind, then this moment's not all there is. I'm free. I'm free to laugh at that. Let's think about it like this. If you... Um, Gosh, Mark, again. I don't have my clicker, and Mark is just like, we are synced. I don't even have to say it. He just knows. Um, let's think about it like this. Let's take God out of verse 9, all right? And let's just see what happens. So obviously it doesn't read very well, but just think about the, think about the flow of thinking. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are meaningless. Do you see that there is an inherent flaw in that thinking? He's saying, be happy while you're young, live it up in your youth. Banish anxiety, it's going to go away though. That doesn't work, right? If you take eternity out of the picture, this crumbles in on itself. The logic's not there. If you take eternity out of the picture, then the only place you can land is meaningless. Here and it's gone. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes is an honest presentation of bleak reality. The bleak reality of life apart from God. This book makes observations that we, we need to consider shows us the problems of human existence. 
There's beauty and there's madness. There's wisdom and there's folly. There's justice and there's injustice. And it's confusing. And it's frustrating because we occupy in a world that is backwards and twisted with sin. So Ecclesiastes points out that problem. The New Testament points out the solution. And there are glimpses of that even here in Ecclesiastes 11. So, like, I'm not a philosopher. Like, Ecclesiastes kind of opens the door for you to wax philosophical a little bit. And it's important for us to consider these things that the, that the teacher brings to bear, right? We should, and we ought to. We must. We must. But I don't want us to end reflecting on the reality that this moment can't carry your hope. We need to, we need to know that. We definitely need to know that. Because I'm tempted every day to try to find my hope in what's happening right in front of me, right? So we need to reflect on that. But I don't want us to end by reflecting on that. Um, I want us to end by reflecting on what or who actually can carry the weight of your hope. So I want to um, look back at, at verse 9 for a second. I'm just going to, I want to point something out and ask a question. He says, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And the very next thought is, so then banish anxiety from your heart. My question is this, how is it that the reality of God's eternal judgment, how is it that that should lead us to banishing anxiety from your heart, from our hearts? Because if I'm honest, if I think about facing God's judgment by myself, that does not banish anxiety from my heart. Maybe you're different, but that's me. So how does he get from there to there? Well, the teacher might not have known this when he wrote this, but the Holy Spirit is pointing us, pointing us to something here or somebody. How is it that God's eternal judgment should lead us to banish anxiety? The answer is this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8-1. Sin gets paid for on the cross. In full. Nothing left. So that day when the sky gets peeled back, guess what? There's no anxiety about it anymore. Jesus says in John 6-39, This is the will of my Father, that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. The under the sun premise, the last day is cause for despair. But for those that are in Christ, the last day is cause for hope. The moment, the moment doesn't have the power, the capability to carry the weight of my hope and your hope. Jesus does. He's alive. Eternity is real. And if you will be with him someday, he has the shoulders to carry your hope in a way that the moment cannot and will not. And if we get that mixed up, we will find that it's meaningless. Fortunately, the teacher tells us that first. Uh, there are two places in the Gospels that Jesus mentions Solomon, okay? Um, one of them is 
a little more famous, and I'm gonna talk about it for just a second to close out. The second one is maybe more ambiguous, so I'm just gonna drop that there for you to go find yourself. Um, the one time where he mentions Solomon that we probably are all, all a little bit more familiar with is in Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching about worry. These are probably familiar words to a lot of us. Jesus says, Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. Some translations say labor or spin. Toil, labor, huh. What do those words make you think of? Maybe Ecclesiastes? The lilies of the field neither toil nor labor nor spin. They don't do these things. And yet not even Solomon in all of his splendor, in all of his striving, in all of his testing, in all of his pleasure-seeking, not even Solomon was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Hevel, here today, gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, clothe us? Jesus provides hope, satisfaction, and peace in a way that the moment cannot. Because eternity is real, because I, because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we will be with him there. And because that is true, we are free to release the moment. Release the moment from the hope of providing ultimate satisfaction and subsequently released to enjoy it for what God has made it to be. I'll pray, worship, worship band, you come back. God, thank you for the wisdom of your word. Pray that you would allow us to receive it. Lord, I pray that you would turn our attention to you, the author and perfecter of faith. You carry our hope, God. Um, Jesus, we look forward to, we look forward to your coming. We praise you for making a way for us to be with you in eternity and experience pleasures forevermore at your right hand. It's in your name we pray. Amen.